0: Just to remind ourselves, why are we working through Luke? Because Luke wrote to um, a character by the name of Theophilus, so he introduces the letter saying, essentially saying, I want you to be convinced, to be sure, to be positive, and to be confident. I want you to really know, uh, and to have your life shaped by what you've been taught, You've you've been taught about Jesus. Now let me construct a a written history of his life. uh, And let me, through his life, convince you that it is a good thing. It is a right thing. It is the right thing to trust him, to put faith in him. Uh, And I guess that same idea flows right the way through from that time to our time today. We look through this letter because it is our desire, it's our confidence in Jesus to convey to you that you really should be confident in this. You should really should be sure of this. When are the times when we are most challenged, to be sure? The times, I think, when we are most challenged, and yet paradoxically, the times when we most grow, are the times when great uh, difficulty, trial, comes into our lives when real issues hit us. Uh, and the two, uh, or the two sections that we're looking at this afternoon really deal with that. So I guess that's why Luke wrote about it. Luke doesn't write about absolutely everything that Jesus did. He selects He identifies the key parts that from his perspective, empowered by the Holy Spirit, these are the things which I have decided you need to know about. John makes it really clear towards the end of his uh, gospel that there were many other things that Jesus did. Too much for me to write about. There's a whole life that is displayed through the gospels. But these issues in chapter 13, particularly 1 to 9, are really challenging experiences of life. In a sense, it couldn't come at a more challenging time for us in our experience living in the world today. The past week, we have seen the most horrific incidents unfold, haven't we? Terrifying. I've been pondering the the contrast, really, uh, nice and Turkey this week unfolding before our eyes. It took me back to 1974. Um, yeah, amazingly, I was born then. Yeah, most of you know that, yeah, of course you were, Paul. Um, 1974, there was a, a coup in Cyprus. Um, and following on from that, a few months later, actually, the Turkish army invaded... Um, part of Cyprus and took over control. Uh, We had some neighbours, friends of the family, who lived across the road. They were caught up in this. Uh, And they were actually an emergency evacuation uh, by the RAF, I guess, or certainly organised by the British government, evacuating people from Cyprus back to the UK, people who were over there. Uh, And yet then it seemed, Cyprus seemed... Such a distant, far away place. And the only bits of news were the 6 o'clock news uh, and the bits in the newspaper that you read on the following day. Uh, And it was happening over there. But it was so far away that it didn't really seem to have much of an impact. I mean, the only really major thing was that they had to be evacuated and they were home safe. And really beyond that, it was an interesting little piece of news. And yet here we are today with uh, social media, and uh, 24-7 news, constant reporting. We're seeing pretty much similar events unfolding in Turkey today which have such a massive sense of connection with us, don't they? They really affect us. They really hit us. Nice Some of us have been to Nice, we know that promenade, we remember the various crossings, we can just picture it, and the horror, the absolute horror of an evening like that, what a terrible experience, Uh, and the way that we see it reported, it brings it into our consciousness in such a real way, such a powerful way. I guess that in a way, the events that we read in Luke chapter 13 had that kind of immediacy for the people who were speaking to Jesus. Because they were events that, not, they're not distant, they're distant to us. But they weren't distant to the people who were speaking to Jesus. They were real immediate events. Terrible, horrific events that had gone on. And I guess what it brings to us is that real human experience that we share with the people who were speaking to Jesus. The sense of events in the world and the sense of crisis in life having that really deep experiential challenge to our existence. It really hits us, doesn't it? It doesn't need to be a niece or a turkey. It can be the events of our immediate life, the things literally going around our our workplace or our families or our home situations. These are the massive issues which challenge who who I am in this world. What can I trust in? How can I know that I can be safe and secure? Jesus deals with horrific events in these opening verses. It opens up where some people were present with Jesus. And there was some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. I guess when Luke writes that, he's, he, number one, he's picking up on a real contemporary event. Something that has very recently happened. Pilate, for a start tells us that it was very recent because Pilate is involved in the the death of Jesus, if you remember. So it's something that has happened immediately around that time, something horrific. When we say that they uh, told Jesus about the Galileans, I don't think that's because Jesus didn't know. It was more, you know, what about this event? And then we unfold the story. We don't know anything about it. Other than it's of an event that happened. It's written in a way where we have to, we kind of we have to deduce certain things and surmise certain things. So I'm going to suggest a scenario that might have happened as I read this. There are a few things that we can be sure of. The first thing that we can be sure of is the character of Pilate. We read about him in the New Testament. We also read him in other about him in other um, historians of the day, and we know that he was an incredibly violent man. He was a self-centered, self-protective, violent man who used the most horrific events and displayed his power in ways which was designed to shut people up, absolutely to silence them. He was he was a nasty piece of work was Pilate. Now, we read about Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. The suggestion that I'm going to make is this, that there were some Galileans who had come to Jerusalem to sacrifice. Now, for a start, we know a little bit about Galileans. Uh, If you were a, a Jew of the time, they were the troublesome bunch from up north. They, they were the ones that were always trying to break away, a bit like Yorkshire. They, they were the ones who were trying to break away. They were the ones who were trying to create their own identity. They were uh, more, perhaps, under the uh, power relationship of Herod, and there was, there was tensions going on between those power structures within the, uh, within the uh, nation, But what we know is that the Galileans had a particular reputation. But they would have still come to Jerusalem, come up to Jerusalem, to perform their sacrifices. The way that we see this written, and this is supported with other suggested historical references, is that at the time where they were sacrificing, Pilate sent in soldiers who massacred them while they were sacrificing. Uh, And that gives the idea of their blood being mixed with the blood of the sacrifice. That's the kind of idea that's being talked about. So, So rather than allowing ourselves to get, if you like, hung up on how the words work, let's just pause and think about it. They were there going about their religious practice. When a group of soldiers rush into the temple and slaughter them. And their blood is shed along with the blood that is being spilt for the sacrifice. Looking at that in human terms is a horrific event, isn't it? I think that's really important for us to, to hold on to. When we try to come to terms with the kind of event that we saw in Nice last week, and we are appalled and horrified and shocked. We are reminded that nothing is new in human experience. Humanity has always had the potential of performing the most extraordinary, horrific things towards other humanity. And Jesus was not somehow distant and separated from that. Jesus was engaged in those kind of events in that day. You, you, would, you would put Pilate in contemporary terms uh, on a similar level to the leaders of North Korea who would perhaps perform such atrocities even today. There is a sense where we get right into the reality Now as they talk about this, Jesus responds with an answer which gives us a suggestion of what they were saying. So all that we know is they talked about it, and then Jesus gives an answer which helps us understand where they were coming from. Jesus responds in this way, he says, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? What does that kind of give us a magnifying glass into the conversation? How does that suggest it's been unfolding? I think it's something like this. There's been a conversation that's gone on like this and we're saying, you know those Galileans that God slaughtered? Even in the temple, that must mean that they they must have been really horrific sinners for that to happen. There is an interpretation of the event through the eyes of seeing themselves living under the hand of God and judgment and justice. That's their idea. When we see this happen, it's not just a freak event from this terrible pilot. It is actually always seen under that greater perspective of the hand of God working in this world. That's the, that was the Jewish mindset of the day. We live in a day where we couldn't be further from that. We live in a day where absolutely nothing has any suggestion of the hand of God. It's all about human intervention or natural occurrence or whatever it might be. We are kind of polar opposites. But they were of that opinion, surely this is God's hand of judgment. What does Jesus say? Do you think that? Do you think they're worse sinners than those sinners of the Galileans, those seditious bunch who were always wanting to be separate? Do you think they're worse? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish, Jesus says. He then brings a, a, another perspective to the dialogue. He says, Well, those 18 who died... Again, we don't know anything about it in terms of any other historical reference. What we do know, it would seem, is that uh, there were towers around the Pool of Siloam. The suggestion from the commentators is that one of these towers has collapsed uh, and there has been 18 people killed. Now, think about the contrast. (laughs) One is very deliberately the hand of a violent man. One, you might say, apart from the fact that you might be able to blame the civil engineers of Jerusalem, one, you might say, is very deliberately an act of God. They were just standing by the tower, and it's collapsed. Nobody pushed it over. Nobody went in with huge levers and prized out the bottom stones, Nobody threw stones one by one from on top. It just collapsed. And I think that really hits into our our personal experience, doesn't it? There are times when people do things to us. And there are times when nobody does anything to us, but they're horrific as well. How do I live? Do I suggest that that is all all of... Satan, or all of God, or the things that happen by other people's hands, or do I suggest that this is all of God? Jesus says, look, (laughs) I tell you no. Neither should you interpret as being specifically divine justice. We have a tendency, don't we? If we live in a wider culture where we have the idea that nothing occurs because of God, there is a danger when we come to a Christian perspective that we interpret everything as being because of God's decision and God's hand on us and God's judgment on us. We interpret everything that way. We make comparisons. That's in a sense what Jesus is doing, isn't he? He's saying, You look at those and you think they must have been really bad. Let me bring these people in who nobody thought that they were bad, but the tower fell down on them. How do we interpret that? We might sit there and say, That's not fair that it fell on those 18. Why did it happen to my brother? or my sister, or my father, mother, or daughter, or son? Why did it happen to somebody who was so close to me? That tower fell down. What I think Jesus is saying is, there is a living reality of living in this world. Living in this world reminds us again and again and again that it is broken. It is not as it ought to be. Towers ought not to fall down. And people ought not to die. But we live in this world. And that's how it is. Jesus then goes on to say, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Wow. That, that is there are times, believe me, there are times when you're sharing the message of the Bible when there are things that you just don't really want to say. (laughs) You really don't want to say it as it is. But Jesus says, you'll perish. In other words, it doesn't matter whether it was constructed by human intervention, or whether it just happened, your job is not to go about interpreting all of those things. Your job is for you to be ready. That's your job. Because if you're not ready now, you will perish. Now, there are two ways that that is uh, potentially read by the commentators. One is that Jesus is speaking to Jerusalem. And he's saying, listen, you have the opportunity to repent. You have the opportunity to listen to me. But they don't. And in AD 70, Jerusalem is crushed. The temple is blown away. There is slaughter. There is perishing. There is that AD 70 moment where it is wiped out. And Jesus says to you, just be ready, listen to me. I would suggest that the message of Jesus is like this. If the people of Jerusalem had listened to Jesus and repented and seen Him as their Messiah, AD 70 would never have happened. (laughs) However, we would not be here today. But there is another sense in which that event, AD 70, is kind of a, it's a warning for all of us. I think it does speak in two ways. It speaks about the immediacy of a few decades, but the bigger picture of our lives today where Jesus says, for you and me, today living our lives, you be ready... Because there is a moment when the tower may fall or the intervention of a despotic horror and you need to be ready. (laughs) Don't perish, Jesus says. He goes on to tell a story. Uh, And the story actually has a great deal of hope in it. It doesn't initially look like, but it has hope in it. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard and he went to look for fruit on it but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree, haven't found any, cut it down, why should it use up the soil? Seems sensible, doesn't it? The fields, are, fields in Israel are not the kind of nice, neat, ringed by fences kind. It was a plot of land with some olive trees in, or fig trees, or growing wheat, or barley, or whatever it might be. Uh, and this man comes, and he's got this fig tree, he owns this land, there's nothing come from that, let's dig it up, let's get rid of it, but there is an intervention. And sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig round it, and I'll fertilize it, If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. I think this is what this is suggesting to us. None of us, in our nature, bear righteous fruit before God. We are all, if you like, barren fig trees. But there is a moment when we hear about Jesus... There is a moment when God intervenes in our experience, and that is a bit like the digging round and the fertilizing. Something is coming in from the outside to give potential for rejuvenation on the inside. Something is coming to give hope where there is no hope in and of itself. And that is what hearing about Jesus does for us today. That's why this is filled with enormous hope. This is a, this, Jesus is telling a story here on the back of saying, repent or perish, which is filled with hope. Because he's saying to the people who are listening, look, I'm the good news. I am the fertilizer. I am the hope. I am the refreshment. I've come. I am present. Will you listen to me? Will you respond to me? Will you place your hope in me? Because if you do, you will bear fruit. You'll bear fruit. I guess the implication is that there is the possibility that even though the fertilizer comes around, even though it's dug all about, there is the possibility that that fig tree still doesn't bear fruit. Jesus told similar parable to that. He said that there's times when the good news of Jesus comes and people hear it, but ignore it. They don't draw it in. I guess that's our challenge, isn't it? On hearing of the great news of Jesus is our response to draw it in and to bear fruit. There's also... The idea that there's hope, and the hope comes in the next story. On a Sabbath day, Jesus' Sabbath, Jesus was teaching one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, "Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. It is the most amazing story. If the first is a story of the challenge of living in the experience of brokenness, this is the outcome of Jesus being present in the experience of brokenness. In a sense, this woman is living with constant challenge. She is living with the constancy of uh, a a tower of Siloam continually falling on her. She is living in a sense of hopelessness. She seems to not have any hope of bearing any good fruit. What happens when Jesus gets close? <laughs> he says to her, get up, stand straight, you are well. let's think about our emotional brokenness. Let's think about our physical brokenness. Let's think about our spiritual brokenness and the brokenness of the attitudes of our heart. All of those different ways in which brokenness can be portrayed, the presence of Jesus brings wellness. That is great news. That is really great news. Did the woman come with the expectation of being restored? I don't think she did. There's no implication that she did. Maybe she knew about Jesus' reputation, made sure that she was there when He was around. But whatever it was, the presence of Jesus brings hope. Now, if the first one talked about the idea of the present and in terms of AD 70 or the long term in terms of the return of Jesus, I think the same goes for this. This woman is immediately restored and healed. That is great news. Jesus can do that even today. But let me tell you this, it seems to me that the promise of this little section is this, that the presence of Jesus guarantees wellness. When is Jesus present with all of us again? When we see him, when we are ready, when we are prepared for his presence again, then there is restored wellness. I don't know about you, but the more time goes on, the more life goes on, the more challenges we face, the more weary I become of life at times. The the more I feel the kind of, I don't want to be morbid, but you know what, it doesn't have all of the hopes that it thought it had when I was 20. The reality is, there are huge amounts of pain and hardship, and difficulty, and suffering. That is the reality. Now, we can live with that without the concept of God. We can say, I don't believe in God. And all of those things stay there. They don't go away. We still have to find a way of making sense of them. The only thing I think we can do then is stoically kind of try to stand up against it for as long as we can until it crushes us finally. Or we can say there is actually real hope in Jesus and if it doesn't happen now it will happen when I see him. There will be restoration, there is hope, my humiliation will be gone. That is great news. In a sense, it becomes a little bit circular, this. What do we do in our lives in the face of the atrocities and the horrors? They're not going to go away. But Jesus says, for all of those things that are going on, your number one priority, number one priority is for you, to be ready. You need to be ready. And ready isn't just this kind of big, powerful God out there who's ready to beat up on you. It's far greater than that. Be ready for the potential of the pouring out of profound and astounding blessings of restoration through me. That's what he says. I pray that as we continue on our journey, that hope in Jesus becomes part of who we are.